Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Well, good morning. As the great poet of our day once said, guess who's back? Back again. Will is back. Tell a friend. That's right. I was going to bust out the other part of it, but you know, we'll just leave it there for today. Uh, for those, I know, for those uh, who, who know, I was out last week with a stomach bug, and um, I just want to say how proud I am of our team for what happened last week, because not only was I not here, which is not really a big deal. If you know the workings behind the scene, it's even less of a big deal, um, but it was not a big deal for me to be gone last week, but what was a big deal is how our team persevered through all the challenges we had last week, the the power outage, the, the wind storms, and all the people who have been dealing with that in their own lives, and then here in the synagogue not having power. Um, and so I think, I think the team that was here last week deserves another round of applause for all the hard work they did. Jerry, for teaching. It was, it was, it was awesome. So I'm glad to be back. I also was in uh, Rhode Island this week uh, working with uh, Pastor Victor Gluckin and Sean, Pastor Sean Finnegan on some discipleship materials, which... It's going to take us some time, but eventually you'll hear more about it. <laughs> so you'll hear more about it eventually. But this morning we're going to talk about kingdom mercy. And as I was uh, talking about this to my brothers, uh, Victor and Sean, Victor asked me, well, what's the difference between mercy and kingdom mercy? And I said, well, Pastor Victor, there's no difference. The point that I'm trying to make in this series is that there are aspects of God's uh, nature that have been expressed throughout time and that will be most fully expressed when Jesus Christ comes back. And so that's why we can call it kingdom mercy. Because it's, that mercy is going to be most fully expressed when we get welcomed into that future kingdom of God. And that mercy still applies to us today in some anticipatory sense. And so that's what we've been seeing this whole series with the kingdom of God. Is that in the fullness, the kingdom of God is when Jesus Christ returns. When, we, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But when we think about love, like we did last week, we do experience love now. But the fullest expression of God's love is throughout all eternity in the kingdom of God. We can still receive God's uh, uh, justification now. We can be declared righteous now, and then we can live righteous lives now. But when is sin going to be completely conquered in the future kingdom of God? We can seek justice now. We can reach out to the, to the poor and the needy in our community. We can act amongst each other in just ways now. But when is everything wrong with the world going to be made right in the future kingdom of God? We have power now. We can experience healing. We can experience the gifts in our meetings together. Uh, we can go out in the world and show that power to others. But when will the power of God completely overshadow the whole world? in the future kingdom of God. So that's what we've been seeing, is that when we talk about these different aspects of Christian living, that really they are connected to the kingdom of God. And that God is at work in ways big and small to see lives transformed in the here and now in advance of the kingdom. And this morning we're gonna be talking about mercy. So mercy uh, in the English language is, according to dictionary.com, there's a couple different layers to this. Uh, the first part is compassionate or kindly forbearance shown toward an offender, an enemy, or other person in one's power. It can be compassion, pity, or benevolence. 
or there's a legal sense in which it's the discretionary power of a judge to pardon someone or to mitigate punishment. And we're going to see that uh, all these senses are seen in the Bible as well. Uh, the Hebrew word for mercy is racham. I'm not going to ask Anna if it was good because I know it wasn't. It was not. <laughs> this word and its related words um, mean to love someone deeply, to be compassionate, and thus to express mercy. And literally this root means to be soft like a womb. And uh, that made me sort of think like this scene maybe in a boxing movie or like a mob movie and the guy comes into this boxing uh, this boxing gym and he talks to like this Russian mobster who runs the gym and he points to a guy and he looks real tough and he says, you know, oh, that guy, that guy, his name's Rocky. And he asks the guy, you know, how tough is he? He's like, no, Rocky's not, not hard. He's soft like womb. He's soft like womb. He's not a tough opponent, you know. <laughs> that's, that's what I sort of thought about there. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Um, in Exodus chapter 34, we're going to see how God describes himself and in our translations, um, frequently capital L-O-R-D, when it's all capitalized, um, that is uh, when the word Yahweh, the actual personal name of God, is used. And I say that because I've been sort of doing this, I've been sort of interchanging them uh, while I've been preaching, and I haven't explained it that much. But here in this context, I think it, it's really important that we, that we understand that. Um, what happened here in the context is, um, God and Moses are working through the difficulties that Israel has already had uh, in the wilderness so far. And Moses is trying to convince God that it's worth it to keep working through the whole nation of Israel, uh, that he shouldn't just like reboot everything. And at some point, Moses asks God to show him his glory. And God says, look, I cannot show you everything about my nature or else you'd explode, right? So um, you'd spontaneously combust and that would not be good for you, Moses. I'm pretty sure that's how the Hebrew should be translated, just for the record. Um, so um, God's like, okay, well, I'm going to put you in this rock and I'm going to sort of cover you with my hand and I'm going to let my glory pass uh, before you. Um, and so what I want, I want to pay attention to a couple things here, though, as we do this, we read this, this is like, one of the most important moments in the history of the nation of Israel is I want you to think about uh, what we learn about God's nature and what we learn about our nature. Okay, what we learn about God's nature, what we learn about our nature. And I want you to focus on, on a specific word here, a word that I think we're all familiar with. That's the word balance. Is God's nature balanced and is our reaction to that balanced? So let's read this and I think we'll get into it. In Exodus 34 verse 6, it says, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. So God is describing himself. He's giving his name to Moses. A God, now he's going to describe himself. A God, first word, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So in God's first declaration of who he is, what his nature is about, he tells us that he is merciful. He's a God who's merciful. He's gracious. He's full of grace. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. 
I've just listed the first six things that God listed off. How many of those six things are positive? All of them. There's only one thing that we would see as sort of a negative thing toward us, right? Where it says he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. So the, one of the things that we can learn here is, is that God is unbalanced. God is unbalanced. He extends himself in mercy and grace, and he loves us more than he is just. Now, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to be honest, because this is how I reacted to it when I first read it. So I'm, I'm being honest with you. I'm asking you to be honest with me. How many of us still got fixated on that last one? <laughs> so our reaction to God is unbalanced, too. Because I thought about this this morning. I do have an explanation for that last one that seems more difficult, that seems like it's a little punitive, that seems like it's a little too far. But I thought to myself, do I really need one? Should I really need an explanation for that? In the context of God saying that he is merciful, that's the first word out of his mouth, that he's gracious, that he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he keeps steadfast love for thousands. Should I have to be able to explain away this second part of this you know, last thing that God mentions about who he is? I shouldn't have to. And yet here we are, have an unbalanced God and we have an unbalanced response to him. Tells you a little bit about that relationship. Now, on verse 7, what does this last part mean? It means, according to Bruckner and understanding the Bible commentary on Exodus 34-7, this means that God does not add punishment, but that the ongoing impact of wickedness will remain as a negative effect upon the family and the community. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that God's going to go out of his way to compound punishment on people. It means that, look, when people make bad decisions, it's going to snowball. It's just going to. Isn't that interesting? And yet, what is our initial response to this, this section? It's fascinating. So what is the bad news with respect to mercy? The bad news is that Israel and Judah constantly needed it. Uh, we can turn to 2 Chronicles Second Chronicles. We should not judge because I'm about to tell you the bad news about us is that we still need it. Second Chronicles chapter 30. This is the time of Hezekiah. He's pleading to do this Passover celebration, which hadn't been done in years and years and years. And he's, he's writing this letter and sending it out to all the um, tribes. And in verse 9 it says, For if you return to Yahweh, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Yahweh your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So here again, we see much, much later in the history of, of Israel and Judah, Judah here specifically, uh, that Hezekiah is leading people back to understanding the nature of who God really is. And that is a merciful God. But they have to return to him. They have to turn from their wickedness uh, because that's the requirement. We saw that in Exodus 34. Uh, let's turn back to Nehemiah. Turn back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, the story, we've been talking about the story of the Old Testament, um, and I thought it was appropriate this week to actually go to a couple passages that describe this in light of God's mercy, because what we've talked about is the story of the Old Testament is a story of, you know, the people of God get a good leader, they do the right things for a period of time, God blesses them, he delivers them, and then there's a period of complacency, they go back into idolatry, bad things happen, 
they do wickedness for a period of time. Eventually, God sends a Messiah. He sends a, a good leader. And then that cycle sort of continues and continues and continues. And Nehemiah here is, um, is talking about this. Um, and you can read the whole chapter. The whole chapter like lays out so much of the history of the, of the Old Testament. Uh, but I just wanted to point out these last couple of verses here in chapter 9. Verse 26 says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient, referring to the people of Israel and, and Judah. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. So Nehemiah is saying, look, uh, God had sent people to bring the people, people back to uh, the right way of doing things and those, those, the people, the general people, killed those prophets, those men who were sent by God to bring them back into God's love, to bring them back into God's mercy, uh, to warn them. Verse 27, Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your what? Great mercies you have, um, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. So they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So what this is saying is that God's graciousness and his merciful nature was expressed through the history of Israel, even when they were sinning, because he did not wipe them out. He decided to ultimately redeem the world through Israel, through a specific son of Israel, whose name was Jesus. And here in both these sections, we have echoes of that 34 Exodus 34, declaration of God's nature, that he is a gracious God, that he is a merciful God. And despite Israel's constant failings, God was always ready with his mercy. His mercy was always right there, ready to go. He was quick to extend mercy. So what is the bad news is, is we need mercy. We needed mercy too. We needed God's mercy. Um, we still need mercy today. Let's turn to Ephesians Ephesians chapter 4. So what is the ultimate good news? Uh, I think we, most of us know the answer to that question. The ultimate good news is that God made a way. That God made a way to extend his mercy in the fullest and most complete way that he could do it. And that is provide a way to enter into the kingdom of God. And he did that through his son Jesus. And uh, God did it independent of human response. Just like what we saw with Israel, how God kept up a relationship, he kept his side of the covenant with Israel, regardless of what they did or didn't do, so he's extended to us this, this new covenant, this new way of living through Christ, independent. Christ did it independently of our response, what our response was going to end up being. And so it's now our responsibility to respond to that favorably and accept that mercy. And so here in Ephesians chapter 2, we see... 
Uh, and again, the first couple of verses here are talking about how uh, evil and, and deep and dead and trespasses and sins we were. And then verse 4, the famous first two words here, but God, but God being rich in what? Mercy because of his great what? Love, which which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that is, I think, ultimately amazing news, isn't it? Uh, it's not our works that get us there. It is the work of Christ uh, that opens up that, that, that way to salvation, that way to enter into the kingdom. Uh, although this is sort of a side point, uh, there are a lot of um, verbs being used here in this passage, and I'm, I'm sort of a, a nerd, as you know. And so I thought there was a commentary quote that I really liked. Um, some of you are going to like the finer points and understand the finer points of the language being used. Some of you may not, and that's okay. I'm going to try to highlight the most important pieces of this. Uh, but I, we're focusing on this made us alive together in Christ part in verse 5. That made us alive together is a, an aorist uh, verb, which generally gets translated as past tense in English. But it can mean a couple of different things. And so what this commentary quote is going to do is it's going to work us through two different options and then explain why the second option and they, this person thinks is better. This is from the New International Commentary on the New Testament, Ephesians, by Kohik. I'm just going to read. It says, The aorist tense, made us alive, may suggest a reference to the future resurrection when God raises believers' bodies, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Paul would thus speak proleptically, that is, the actions described are anticipated to occur in the future. So in other words, made us alive sounds like a past tense verb, but really it's a future tense verb. And we just understand it to be past tense because whatever God has promised, he is sure to be able to perform. So what the commentator says, that's it, what the word proleptic means. Uh, that is, the actions described are anticipated to occur in the future, and the confidence of their ultimate outworking is so great as to cause Paul to represent these events as already in effect. So that's one option. One option is to think, past, we can understand as a past tense verb, because the future is so assured that we are going to be made alive together on the last day with Christ. Okay. Next couple pages here. Next couple slides here. However, while it is true that believers' bodies have yet to be raised and that Christ's second coming is still on the horizon, his victory over sin and death pertains now, as his resurrection life attests. And in our passage, victory over spiritual forces and trespasses stand at center stage. Therefore, the aorist tense is best understood here as constative because it paints the action as a whole, standing from the outside, presenting God's action without concern for when the action began or ended. So there's some technical stuff here, but I want to get to the main point here. Paul shows that believers in Christ have victory over death and the spiritual powers that promote evil and disobedience. Believers were spiritually dead, uh, now are regenerated to a holy life that honors God and blesses others, and will continue in the new heavens and new earth as they enjoy resurrected bodies, all based on God's grace exercised in Christ. So what the commentator is saying here is, is that we could understand this as a past tense thing because the future is so assured. That, that's one way of, of doing it. The other way of doing it is to say that because Christ has done this future thing, 
where we know the kingdom's going to come and that victory over sin is guaranteed, that actually comes back very, in a very living and real sense now, where we now have been regenerated to living a, a holy life and we can participate in that kingdom life today and that that's how we can bless other people in the world around us. That's what this is saying. Pretty cool stuff, huh? I thought it was really cool she highlighted those two things in that commentary. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter. So the good news is that God has made a way through his grace, through his mercy, that we can experience victory over sin and death. And we can do that in fullness in the future, but in, in a, very, a very, uh, very beautiful sense now as well. 1 Peter 1 Verse 3, it's one of the first things that comes out of Peter's mouth here after the greeting. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great, what? Mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Sounds like a name of a pretty good church, living hope. Uh, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, Okay, so we talked about that before. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed when? In the last time. So what this is talking about, whenever we think about something being reserved in heaven for us, we're talking about this future kingdom of God reality that's going to come down to earth eventually in its fullness. That's why it says it's kept in heaven and it says it's ready to be revealed in the last time. So we, we have this living hope. We have received God's great mercy but there is a more complete sense in which it'll be fully unveiled to us in the future. The fullest, most complete act of mercy will be when we enter the kingdom of God to enjoy all that God has in store for us throughout all of eternity. So that leads us to what is the good news for today? Well, we do experience God's mercy today. We can uh, come into relationship with God and with Christ through that mercy. Um, I'm going to read Titus 3. If you want to join me in in whatever version you have, that's great. But I'm going to read it from the the revised English version, the REV. And I think it says some, some wonderful things here in Titus 3. It says, But when the kindness and benevolence of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous works that we ourselves did, but on the basis of His mercy, through the washing of a new beginning and renewal by the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that since we have been declared righteous by his grace, we became heirs with the hope of life in the age to come. This statement is trustworthy, and I want you to strongly insist on these things so that those who have believed God will be intent on applying themselves to what? Good works. These things are good and profitable for people. So what I love about this passage is it sort of encompasses everything we've been talking about. It talks about how God saved us, that it wasn't through righteous works that we did, but on the basis of his mercy, his merciful nature that he described in Exodus 34. That we received that through the washing of the new beginning and renewal by the Holy Spirit, which he poured out through Jesus Christ our Savior. That we've been declared righteous by his grace. We've become heirs with the hope of life in the kingdom, in the age to come. So it talks about the kingdom here. And then it says at the end of the passage, look, uh, those who believed on God will be intent on applying themselves to good works. That is our natural response to all of this. We receive God's grace. We don't trample on God's grace. We act out of God's grace. And to do that is to live righteously and to do good works. 
So when we receive salvation, we receive mercy. We receive forgiveness for our past sins. And then as we walk in Christ, we're not going to be perfect. We make mistakes. What do we do? We ask for forgiveness. That's 1 John 1. So uh, the good news for today, the first step is we receive mercy ourselves. The second thing we do is we imitate our God, who is a merciful and gracious God, and we extend that mercy as an invitation to other people. Uh, let's turn to Matthew. Turn to Matthew. We're going to go to three different sections in Matthew here to close. First one's Matthew 5. Matthew 5, early on in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to tie mercy here with forgiveness because I think forgiveness is a practical application of mercy. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall, what? Receive mercy. And again, we've talked about how this isn't transactional. This isn't tit for tat. This isn't pay to play. This means we have uh, received God's mercy and we are now uh, extending. We're the kind of people that extend ourselves outward in mercy. Um, and that's, that's how it works, is we see the benefit of what God did for us and we do the same. In Matthew 6, we've seen, we saw these verses a couple weeks ago. In verse 14, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So again, this is hyperbole. This is um, a very emphatic way of speaking. But again, what we've seen in the course of this series is, is that uh, we receive something from God and we see the benefit of it and the joy in that. And then we want to duplicate that in, in our lives so that we invite others to experience God's grace and his mercy through how we behave. And that was something that N.T. Wright pointed out for us a couple weeks ago. So in other words, by being merciful, others experience the goodness of God through us. Uh, I don't know about you, but I know I have often needed to experience mercy uh, at various times in my life for various reasons. Um, now, my wife is probably the greatest example of this, but I'm not going to share an example from my wife today. Uh, she probably will breathe a sigh of relief when she hears this later. Uh, but I'm going to talk about uh, something that happened to me when I was younger, uh, where, where my dad was the one who extended mercy to me. Uh, and I, I briefly mentioned this earlier in the series, but I'll tell you the full story now. I was probably 17 or 18 and uh, was going out for a night with a young lady. I was, we were not dating, we were just friends, but uh, being a young man and her being a young lady, I still wanted to impress her. And I was driving the family van, and it was the end of the night, and I was taking her back to her parents' apartment, and I was, you know, pulling into a parking space, and I was trying to do it, you know, cool and fast, right? You know, the whole, like, thing, you know, you get, and I didn't, I didn't calculate everything correctly. I should have. And uh, so sure enough, I scraped up the side of our family van. Uh, thankfully, the other car was, was, uh, was not hurt at all. It was uh, just my van that got hurt. So it was at night, and uh, so I went home, and I didn't tell my parents about it because I knew I would have to tell them the next morning, and they'd, they'd be able to see it. So, um, so I told them the next morning. I said, you know, hey, I tried parking. I failed miserably at parking. Uh, and I expected my dad. My, for those of you that know my dad, my dad is the most laid-back, kind uh, man, he, he did not have a huge temper, but he, he, he had a long fuse, and sometimes you would get to the end of that fuse, and you might see a little bit of anger out of him. I just didn't know what to expect. You know, it's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if dad's going to yell at me or if he's, you know, what's going to happen. And I remember my dad walking around the van. 
he had like this look on his face, like. <laughs> and he comes back in, and I'm expecting something, like anything. And my dad didn't say hardly a word to me about it. And I just remember feeling that mercy. That invigorated me. That in that moment gave me life. And that's what we do for people when we extend mercy to them. They receive life. Let's turn to Matthew 18. If we want to talk about forgiveness and mercy, I think this is probably the best parable, one of the best parables certainly about it. Because I think we can identify so clearly with one of the characters in this. Humbly. In Matthew 18, verse 21, it says, Then Peter came up to and said to him, Jesus, said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And, you know, we don't have to get into... Uh, all the nitty-gritty about this, but my ASV study Bible says that that's approximately $6 billion in today's money, okay? So um, this is a, supposed to be an impossible sum of money to repay, okay? 10,000 talents. Verse 25, and it would, it would have been ridiculous on the ears of the people listening, just to be very clear about that. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. Again, that's, that wasn't going to pay back the debt. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And a hundred denarii, according to my study Bible, is about $12,000. So a significant sum of money, but not impossible to pay back. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, I would be too, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should you not have had what? Mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So this is a gut check for us. You know, what, what have we been forgiven for? Only you know all the things that you've been forgiven for through Christ. But that is a debt that you could not pay. That's the whole point of Ephesians 2, right? That's the whole point of Titus 3, right? We could not pay that debt. We received mercy beyond what we deserved. Remember what I said? Our God is, what kind of God? Is he a balanced God? He's unbalanced. He's unbalanced. He extends himself further than what makes sense from a justice perspective. He extends himself. So look at what we've been forgiven of. Look at God's great mercy in our lives. Think about how mercy gives life. Mercy gives life. So how can we then hold back that mercy from others? How can we withhold good when it is in the power of us to do it? How can we hold back something that can give them life? I don't think we can. 
I think we have to cultivate that lifestyle, that attitude of replicating our Father's love, replicating His grace, replicating His mercy in our lives. That's what we're supposed to do. So as we close, I, I want to acknowledge a few important things about mercy, about forgiveness, about grace, about love. Um, first, I want to point out just briefly, we don't have time to unpack all of this by just, I think this is an important thing to say. Whenever we talk about mercy, whenever we talk about forgiveness, it's important to talk about the fact that extending mercy or forgiving someone may not mean that they get the same access in your life as they had before. We have to draw boundaries. There are people in this world who are, who are evil. There are people in this world that are broken and are dealing with very deep things in their own lives where habitual sin and habitual error and so on leads them to act in ways that can destroy you if you stay close to them. The Bible talks about that. The Bible says, you know, certain people were to mark and avoid. That's, that's a thing. So just because we're extending mercy and forgiving someone does not mean that they get the same access that they got before. So I'm not saying, because I'm about to say something that's pretty, um, that could be seen as, uh, detrimental in some of these circumstances. I want to I want to start with that caveat first before we get to what I'm going to get to here in a second. So we have to have healthy boundaries. That's thing one. So now I want to get to my closing point here. Extending mercy makes us vulnerable by definition. Makes us vulnerable. God, think about God throughout the Old Testament time. You know, Israel was to him like an unfaithful wife. You think about like Jerry Springer or some of these really cruddy shows, right? You watch the show and the, there's a guy and it's like, the wife is cheating on the husband. And what's your emotional response when you see that? Oh my God, what a doofus, what an idiot. And you know, he comes in and he's like, I want to go to the counseling. I want to save our marriage. And everyone's just like laughing at him, right? Because he is vulnerable. He's fighting for his marriage, but he's the one who's acting out. He's the one who's vulnerable. That was God. God was the one coming on the show saying, I want to save the marriage. And everyone else was laughing. Because our God extends himself. He made himself vulnerable because of his mercy. Well, I'll speak for myself. I don't like being vulnerable. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be viewed as in the position of weakness. You know, we, we like to be polite. We like to be nice. We like to be balanced people. And what I'm saying is God is unbalanced and we should be unbalanced too. We should allow mercy and grace, that mercy and grace of God to shine through in our lives. And that means we ought to feel deeply. We ought to be moved deeply by compassion. We ought to move, be moved deeply in order to affect grace and mercy in someone's life. And the world is always trying to desensitize us. It's trying to get us to not feel anything. It's trying to strip the emotion away from our lives. But what I'm saying this morning is we should be emotional. We should be unbalanced. We should be moved with compassion. We should want to extend mercy, grace, love, forgiveness to people around us. Even when it makes us look weak. Even when it makes us look weird. Even when it makes us vulnerable. That's how we can show people, the world, the people around us, who God is, his merciful character, his gracious character. That's how we do it, by extending ourselves in an uncomfortable way sometimes. Let's pray. Father, give us strength. 
help us to see how we can do this. Help us to see how we can be vulnerable, how we can extend ourselves, how we can see your mercy so big in our lives that we just want to duplicate it. Father, we're going to need help. I know I need help with it, God. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't, I don't want to look weak. I don't want to look weird or silly. I just want to be a balanced person. just want to look like a normal, sane person, God. But that's not right. That's not what you've called us to be. You've called us to imitate your love in this world. And doing that means we have to be people of mercy. And so, Father, I just ask you for help with that today. I know I need it. We thank you for the greatest act of mercy you could possibly have done, sending your son to live the life that he lived, to die the death that he died. We're so thankful that you raised him from the dead. You vindicated him as our Lord and our Messiah. And Father, we just aim to follow him today as he extended himself to others. So we want to do that as well. So Father, we thank you for how you described yourself to Moses and how you continue to show yourself throughout history and in our lives as a God that is merciful, gracious, slow to anger abounding in mercy. We thank you for that today, God, and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.